I'm delighted to be here to introduce our speakers. We have three excellent speakers this evening. The first is Ian Shaw, a political geographer from the University of Glasgow in the UK. Our second speaker is Felicity Ruby, who is doing doctoral research on transnational political movements under mass surveillance. And our final speaker is Professor Peter Frey from the University of Technology, Sydney. So just to introduce Ian, our first speaker in detail. Ian is, as I mentioned, a political geographer at the University of Glasgow, researching drone warfare, security and political philosophy. Please join me in welcoming Ian. Thank you. Go back in time to 1979. It was a year the United States was feeling the effect of soaring oil prices. In fact, the country faced one of the worst energy crises in memory, which was really jacking up the prices of heating homes during the winter. Now, nowhere was this felt more than the small Vermont town of Winooski where ice-cold temperatures threatened to chill its 7,000 residents to the bone. But a group of city officials had an idea to shelter townsfolk from the blizzards and the cold. Now this idea would be lauded and mocked in equal measure. Why not build a gigantic dome over the town? A bubbled habitat sealed from the frosty outside. The so-called Winooski Dome would measure approximately 1.3 square miles and be built from crystal clear plastic. Now in 1980, after considerable excitement and national press, the Department of Housing rejected the request. And despite widespread curiosity, many residents were fearful of the project. Would life inside feel claustrophobic? Now beyond the Winooski Dome, Popular culture is full of domes. In The Truman Show, for example, the protagonist plays out his entire life inside a vast reality TV dome, with cameras hidden inside the constructed set. And of course, in Stephen King's Under the Dome, it depicts the descent into civil war for one fictional US town after a dome seals its hapless residence inside. Now I think this fear and this curiosity for life inside of domes is a, more, is a metaphor for a more basic truth about humanity, that we are builders of worlds and our societies are very much shaped by the artificial environments that we construct around us. In fact, we never stop passing through spaces that transform who we are. And the way in which we're governed, surveilled, policed, even killed, is inseparable from this technological background. Also, there's something else that the dome hints at, and that's the increasing atmospheric dimension of human security. The air above us, the sky that blankets us, is increasingly the target for surveillance, violence, control, and profit. From spy satellites in the upper atmospheres to planes in the sky, to drones zooming through the city, we are increasingly watched and surveilled, brought on the inside of state power, of war power, and of capitalism. And in fact, since the 20th century, 
since the age of railways and telegraphs, themselves productive of all kinds of new spaces and times in the world. These were overthrown by airplanes and radio signals. Human contact moved from the surfaces of the planet into its surrounding atmospheres. And in turn, international relations, warfare, state violence, targeted killing, and now even domestic policing is increasingly oriented by securing the atmosphere. So slowly but surely, we are erecting new kinds of domes for us to live inside. Except these domes don't really have physical roofs. These ceilings are made of drones. Our lives, the lives of others, suspended beneath the robot. Now the military drone has been instrumental to the US-led war on terror, providing intelligence to pilots that can and often are set thousands of miles away. And since 2001, these flying robots have been weaponized, giving all kinds of uh, criticisms of alienated violence, of breaches of international law. US drones, for example, have struck approximately 500 times outside of traditional battlefields to kill around 4,000 people. And in fact, these drone strikes are often driven by what's called metadata, where the individual not killed is known only by his or her electronic footprints, digital shadows, and algorithmic patterns. Securing territory with boots on the ground, as with counterinsurgency, is now very much secondary to surveilling and eliminating dangerous individuals wherever they emerge. This has grown and is growing to a global robotic manhunt produced by a surveillance architecture that connects Menworth Hill in England with Pine Gap here in Australia. But I really want to turn to the idea of drones coming home, where the lines between criminal and combatant become ever more blurred as terrorism and counterterrorism bleed into the background of everyday life. One trend, of course, is the adoption of drone technology within law enforcement. Here, examples include the use of Predator and Reaper drones in the US to monitor the Mexican and also the Canadian borderlands. Now these drones are controversial because they have often been accused of sucking up data on innocent US citizens. Consider also the growing use of smaller US uh, police quadcopters for surveillance. And of course, there's an economic logic at work here too. It's far cheaper for police to send drones into the sky than expensive manned helicopters. And in addition to surveillance, drones are being developed for tear gassing and other forms of riot control. And a big trend, of course, since their military roots is for drones to become smaller, ever smaller. And this holds the potential for them to colonize the spaces of everyday life in ways that science fiction can barely keep up with. 
The military is investing billions in drones that can cooperate together in miniature swarms that mimic insects and birds. And of course, these drones would be able to infiltrate a range of currently inaccessible urban spaces. So unlike police helicopters that are forced to fly high above city skylines, micro-drones could pass seamlessly between urban buildings, descending from remote clouds to the bustling nooks and crannies of the metropolis. So here's the question for you today. Are we at the beginning of a kind of state totalitarianism of the skies? And everywhere atmospheric policing, where the government sends drones to spy on our daily movements, where swarms of drones monitor our commutes to work. A future where it's drones that are first responders to emergencies. How would we feel living between such a robotic dome? Paranoid or safe? Secure or insecure? Of course, the skies are not simply the hunting grounds for state actors. In fact, a variety, even more non-state actors, are scrambling for the vertical dimension of human society. Corporations such as Amazon, Google, and Facebook see airspace as very much ripe for robotic capital. Drones for logistics and delivery, drones for agriculture, real estate, journalism, and potentially thousands of other uses. Now this could lead to less obvious, perhaps less pernicious forms of surveillance as drones collect commercial intelligence. Perhaps the, the type of car we drive, or perhaps the plants in our backyard so they can sell targeted ads to you, or the people that we associate with. And of course, that's to say nothing of a more imminent problem, the nosy neighbor filming us sunbathing, our privacy hacked. And of course, on top of this, consider the growing concern over terrorists using drones, delivering chemical weapons or explosives into densely populated urban areas or government buildings. Perhaps it's just a matter of time. So as our societies continue to move from the ground to the sky, we will face obstacles, these kinds of obstacles, previously the preserve of science fiction, from police drones monitoring us 24-7 to private security drones securing mega events, such as football games, to criminal drones capturing our digital lives. The technology is already there. And I mean, just a couple hundred of years ago, it would have been imaginable that the surfaces of this planet would be patterned by concrete roadways that now carry 1.2 billion cars. So is it so far-fetched that within decades rather than centuries, the air above us will be brimming with tens or hundreds of billions of drones? A skyscape with government drones spying on us, of military drones waging an endless war on terror in the background, and of course, drones delivering pizza.
Our cities would become ever more like airports, spaces in which the sky above us is brimming with flying robots. And as a result, an increasingly atmospheric government imposing atmospheric security may place us all inside its watchful and robotic eyes. If fully realized, this would become a totalizing space of surveillance in which there are few exits sealed inside the robotic dome. And at the center of such a future, which may or may not come to pass, still lies a very human debate on accountability and power, on the age-old division between liberty and security. Now, I began this talk with the curious case of the Winooski Dome, a blueprint for a town that never was. In 1981, a couple of years after the excitement had died down, the mayor gave an interview to a newspaper, and she said this. I'm not a sociologist, she confessed, but the idea of people living together in a controlled environment is a much more complex question than any technical concerns. I think she was right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ian. So our second speaker is Felicity Ruby, a doctoral student at the University of Sydney in the Department of Government and International Relations. Her research on transnational political movements against mass surveillance is based on a long history of advocacy and activism. She's been a political advisor to Senator Scott Ludlam, Greenpeace International, and also a peace and security advisor to the United Nations Development Fund for Women. Please join me in thanking Felicity. It's great to be here on Gadigal land, land that was never ceded. I think I was invited here today because um, this was my best moment of my last holiday in New Zealand. Uh, I went to New Zealand for six days and found myself at the Waihopai Spy Base, which is on the South Island and is uh, part of the Five Eyes surveillance system. New Zealand joins Australia, Canada, the UK and the USA and these kinds of facilities are what links the communications and surveillance system together of what's called the five eyes. Um, one of my case studies is Pine Gap, which you just saw a photo of. This is a more recent one after a lot of rain. Um, and this is on the land of the Aranda people just near Alice Springs. And these are the people who recently went in September to protest against Pine Gap. And when I've interviewed a lot of these people for my thesis, lots of transcribing, um, a major, major motivation for these people to be concerned about surveillance and concerned about places like Pine Gap and Waihopai is drones. Whereas in the 80s, the weapon of concern would have been nuclear weapons, and after all, we still have nuclear weapons, and the nuclear doomsday clock just got changed to two and a half minutes to midnight, which it hasn't been at since 1953. Today, people are really concerned about the indiscriminate and arguably illegal nature of these extrajudicial assassination programs. 
Um, and places that look very much like these places, places that look like this, these are where mobile phones are tracked and where data that's necessary for these drone strikes, this is where they're collected. Uh, towards the end of his life, um, a remarkable and productive academic that you might have heard of called Des Ball. For um, many years, Des thought that Pine Gap might have a role in, um, in verifying disarmament treaties um, and disarmament processes. But towards the end of his life, he was so concerned about what happens with drones, um, what happens to our sovereignty and to our security as a nation when facilities on our soil cause so much death, destruction and criminal liability. So that was what he was most worried about. And much of the work in his last years was focused on Pine Gap and on the questions that we're here talking about tonight. Um, and there'll be a book coming soon from him. So drones are really a game changer in, in what, what, what's motivating and, and worrying people right now. One year after the Snowden revelations, Human Rights Watch spoke to 46 journalists and their questions were very similar to ours tonight, which I'll remind you from the advertising was about how is surveillance impacting the work of the media and the public's right to know? And how can media help officials um, stay accountable in an age of mass surveillance? So the journalists that spoke to Human Rights Watch said three things. The first one was less is being reported about intelligence, national security, law enforcement, because less people are willing to talk off the record to journalists. So that restricts the flow of information and therefore impacts the public's right to know it knows less because there's less being written. Well, the, um, the treatment of whistleblowers and publishers has been very severe in order to do just that, in order to stop people coming forward. That said, Snowden was motivated by Manning Leaks have continued apace, um, and I'm still noticing very often references to um, senior sources speaking on the condition of anonymity um, being reported in the papers. So it's still normal to leak. It's business as usual for certain types of leaks, but others are treason and espionage. In a tweet the other day, Glenn Greenwald put it this way. He said, the number of people who instantly believe every anonymous evidence-free claim from the intelligence community and treat it as a fact is genuinely alarming. But maybe, maybe what the journalists were telling Human Rights Watch is that the long tradition of plausibly deniable briefings between intelligence facilities and agencies and journalists, sometimes even at the Ritz in London, according to David Rose, um, has been shaken by the Snowden revelations. What intelligence agencies are doing much more now, according to Paul Lushmer, who's a former investigative journalist turned media academic, he says that intelligence agencies are following much more the police path of professionalising um, media contact. And we're seeing that here too in Australia. Our intelligence agencies have websites, they have official spokespeople who are managing the media contact, the media content and the delivery of public statements. And what Lushmar warns journalists is that there is a you have a difficulty of resisting career-enhancing insider information. And the other danger is drawing too close to the intelligence contacts because we see the perils of being too close and believing too quickly and readily with the WMD and Iraq stories. The second things that journalists said um, to Human Rights Watch was that since Snowden, they've had to take extraordinary measures to protect sources. 
and that they're not always up to it, they're not always capable, technically. Well, responsible journalists have always needed to deploy elaborate measures, really, to, to um, protect sources, but these days that involves encryption and learning a little bit about your digital security hygiene. And at the time of the Human Rights Watch report, very few were doing it, but that has changed since. Why has it changed? Why are journalists becoming more interested in, in learning about encryption and, and protecting themselves and their sources? Well, I mean, one is Glenn Greenwald nearly missed the scoop of the century because he didn't have his encryption um, together. Snowden even sent him a hilarious video that you can see online where he's badly trying to disguise his voice and take him through the steps. Many, many more journalists are getting with the program because they don't want to miss those stories. It's only because Laura Poitras was actually competent digitally that we have the Snowden revelations at all. More and more journalists are getting with the program and more and more mainstream media organisations are understanding that they need to provide a secure and a safe way for sources to come forward. So something like Secure Drop, which is a gateway, a bit like on the WikiLeaks model for an anonymous drop, um, this isn't just being used by, you know, like UFO enthusiasts. This is being used by, you know, The Guardian, The Intercept, but also Vice, The Washington Post, Gizmodo, CBC, The Associated Press. So this is becoming more, more mainstream, so that's very positive. The third thing that the Human Rights Watch people heard from the journalists was that I'm not a spy, I'm a journalist. Well, the problem is a lot of journalists actually have been spies in the past. After all, Kim Philby, the most famous of the Cambridge Five, he wrote for The Observer, The Economist, The Times, with whom the security services had arrangements. In 1996, when Deutsch was the director of the CIA, he spoke against the US House of Representatives, who came up with a measure to ban the use of journalists as spies unless the president gave a waiver. Well, Deutsch popped up and said, oh no, the CIA should not be prohibited from considering the use of American journalists or clergy. So it's pretty common. In the 1970s, the Pike Committee acknowledged that in addition to stringers and freelancers collecting information and rumours, as well as planting stories, fake news is not new, full-time correspondents for major US publications have worked concurrently for the CIA, passing along information received in the normal course of their regular jobs and even on occasion travelling to otherwise non-newsworthy areas to acquire data. The US Department of Defence have got it in their manual that um, journalists are fair game. Reporting on military operations can be very similar to collecting intelligence or even spying, says this 2015 US Army manual. A journalist who acts as a spy may be subject to certain security measures and punished if captured. So that is, this is really not news. Fake journalists have been around for a while and they have been a problem for actual journalists and the independence of publishers and broadcasters, many of whom have a long history of compromising that independence. And that is also why there is a crisis of confidence in journalism today. So we can have a fight about that later. Um, what the Human Rights Watch report didn't explore so much, and recent revelations have made more urgent, is the idea of, and the fact of, and the, the routine of, governments and private security firms working together on clandestine attacks on activists and journalists. 
to shut down stories about surveillance and to conduct media campaigns to distract people from examining the materials that whistleblowers have provided. Which brings me to my other case study for examining the tactics uh, against resisting surveillance, and um, that is WikiLeaks, and I'll, I'll finish with that tonight. When Anonymous hacked the HB Gary company, we learned of the extraordinary conspiracy to destroy WikiLeaks. The targeting of journalists like Glenn Greenwald was key to that in what the US Department of Justice and Intelligence contracting firm Palantir, um, under director Peter Thiel, a name you might recognize, this is what they cooked up. So this has been around for some time, but, but Barrett Brown, um, a US journalist who's just been released from jail for reporting on this hack, not for doing the hack, but for reporting on it. Um, he, was, he was jailed for, for three and a half years. Um, he's reminding us to think about how routine these um, private public collaborations have become. Barrett Brown said recently, you have to be aware that these are people who play dirty and they have every advantage in the traditional sense of connections to government and they generally have a great deal of money. This is less of an abstract issue now. This is less of an issue of what could happen someday. And if there's no consequences for it, even when they're discovered, obviously they keep doing it. And they do keep doing it, and they did keep doing it. They keep working with these companies in ways that are not provided for by the Constitution and are against the stated policies of these government agencies. So here is a list of tactics recommended by Palantir for dealing with WikiLeaks. So, uh, the destruction of a publishing organisation. So, feed the fuel between feuding groups. Oh, I think we've seen that. I think we've seen that. Tick. Disinformation. Well, <laughs> tick. Another one. Media campaign to push the radical and reckless nature of WikiLeaks activities. Sustained pressure. Does nothing for the fanatics, but creates concern and doubt amongst the moderates. Well, that appears to have worked terrifically well, particularly in Australia, where it seems that only a handful of journalists are not amplifying precisely those instructions. When the focus is on the source or the publisher's hair or socks, the risk taken by whistleblowers to hold power to account is diluted, and we do see a disparity between the coverage of the substantive information that WikiLeaks is making available as compared to the speculation about its sources, and on Twitter, the invective is remarkable. One journalist I interviewed recently um, offered this by way of explanation, which I'm sure will make some journalists in the room a bit grumpy with me, so let me provoke you, and then, we can, and then I'll close. When WikiLeaks came along, she said, it was a dark time for many of us. I know people who had nervous breakdowns and lost their homes because journalism had become something different. And when you see the expression of that as Julian Assange, you can feel personally affronted. I think this continues to inform a lot of the midlife journalists. There's a bit of an old-fashioned spite. Some got very, I can do it better, it's my job, about the whole thing. It's not just political or ideological, but it's also psychological. It's territorial. We can do it better than you. We know how to be impartial. Now, journalists can do some stuff better than WikiLeaks, obviously. They can write in a common language and weave things into a story, although with decreasing skill, this journalist said, but they can't be more impartial. But what do you do when the public doesn't want to know. We're here talking about the public's right to know, but what if the public doesn't want to know? Assange has observed that the problem of surveillance feeds on itself. A certain paranoia develops. 
a response to knowing the truth about this issue is a kind of paralysation to journalists and to sources. So even talking about this issue can be a problem. It can make it worse if we're not careful because people become concerned that if they speak to each other about the fact of mass surveillance, um, it will make the surveillance worse. But in fact, it makes the problem worse. So the problem gets worse faster. And it's getting worse faster anyway because computer technology is developing on an exponential curve, doubling in speed every two years. The amount that can be intercepted, understood, is doubling every two years. But that said, so is our capacity to communicate, to, to publish, to express. We can communicate with each other faster, we can come up with better ideas faster, we can collaborate faster. So this interweaving of ideas and policy systems and trade makes a complex and rapidly moving system. It's, it's quite hard to surveil and understand in real time. So um, at this stage, I would say it's impossible to say which forces are dominating, despite the incredible disparity between the power and resources available to um, intelligence agencies and government and private corporations as opposed to, to activists but, and journalists who are keeping the potential window open for a positive use of some of this technology, not just a dystopian surveillance nightmare. Thank you. Thank you, Felicity, and uh, great segue to our next speaker. I can think of no better person to respond to this um, at the end of this panel, which is terrific. It's a pleasure to introduce Professor Peter Frey. He is the Professor of Journalism Practice at the University of Technology, Sydney, and the founder of the fact-checking website PolitiFact Australia, and the former editor-in-chief or editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, the Canberra Times, the Sun Herald, and the Sunday Age. His research interests include trust in journalism, automation and fact-checking, and the future of work. Please join me in welcoming Professor Peter Frey. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, I am uh, not a spy, uh, although I guess you'd expect me to say that. But, um, Thank you to uh, the previous two speakers. Uh, I thought they both have some terrific ideas and I hope they've inspired a lot of questions in you. Um, I'm, I want to talk briefly about the gift of Donald Trump uh, to journalism. Uh, then I want to do a reverse ferret and speak about the challenges that that gift presents to journalism. And then I want to finish off much closer to the topic we've all been talking about with my concerns about the impact of recent legislative changes on journalists and whistleblowers. Uh, so I stress that these are sort of dot points uh, for further debate, and as I say, please bring it on. So first up, Trump. Um, uh, I have no idea, and I'm sure neither, none of us do, what he will do for America, but it is looking increasingly obvious that he will make journalism great again. Or to purloin a meme that's doing the rounds, if uh, America is going to be first, then journalism is going to be second. So uh, Trump's attacks on the media, plus the torrent of news he's creating, is a fillip, obviously, for media sales and subscriptions, and not just in the US, but here as well. Uh, he and his team are really doing for fake real news what they once did for fake news. They are underwriting demand. But I, I, I just mention that because I think the gift of Trump is not to be squandered. Uh, it may only be a matter of time before Trump turns his anti-journalism rhetoric into anti-journalism action. 
And there are, of course, uh, constitutional barriers to that in the United States. But Trump is clearly capable of doing and saying virtually anything and has either scant respect for or knowledge of the laws of his own country. So the, the atmosphere is increasingly uh, toxic, febrile, and of course it's contagious. And while we in Australia may think of ourselves immune to the worst of this infection, we've already seen anti-media, anti-journalism rhetoric creeping deeper into our own public discourse. Um, and with political populism riding high and, uh, and doing so in many guises, you'd have to suspect it will only increase. I'm sure one nation will see to that. So herein lies the challenge to journalism, to, I think, to reimagine and recapture its relationship with readers, listeners, and watchers, and explain the why, the what, and the how of what it does, and listen to the views about how it could do better. So Trump is a crisis, and as every good political operative knows, a crisis is not to be wasted. So journalism is suffering, as I think uh, Felicity said, suffering from much the same trust deficit as the political class. In fact, they, or we, are bringing each other down, uh, clinging and drowning to each other in a pool of conflict without purpose, noise without knowledge. And journalism's salvation in part rests in admitting that something might be wrong, or at least in conceding that improvements might need to be made, and to become more accountable and more transparent. Uh, there are multiple ways that this could happen, and here are just three, and I apologize, I don't have any slides. I feel inadequate because you have to look at me, so I apologize for that, but, or listen to me. Anyway, so the, here are three ideas I have, and there are plenty more. Uh, number one is to seek and promote facts and op over opinions and policy over pratfalls and call out false heads, sorry, false heads, false hoods as false hoods. I mean, already we are seeing an increasing willingness within news stories, especially in the United States, for journalists to identify and, and call out clear fabrication. Uh, but even so, uh, Malcolm Turnbull going feral against Bill Shorten, uh, as he did last week, is still guaranteed uh, to get more, far more media prominence than the legislation containing, say, child welfare payment cuts or the real causes of the blackouts in South Australia. Number two, uh, I think we should adopt extreme accountability measures. Uh, work by the Trust Project, among others, in Santa Clara University indicates that media consumers actually want to know the answer to who the journalist is, uh, how and why they did what they did to create the story, uh, what were the sources, is there further reading, references, um, and more information about the author. And I, I think answering such questions, even though at first bl blush it seems onerous, uh, if not impractical, could, much of this could be uh, automated, uh, and much of it will be automated in the near future, or could be in, uh, automated in the near future. And the Trust Project uh, has come up with various means, including something called the Trust Tick, in much the same way as the Health uh, Heart Foundation's Health Tick, to indicate certain standards of transparency and point to greater accountability. Um, and there are other attempts to formalize journalistic standards uh, that came out in, our, in for instance, the review of uh, the ACMA res uh, regulation. Uh, other um, legal academics have suggested using a tier or band system to regulate requirements for trust. So look, such an ideas may be an anathema to many publishers and journalists and editors, but I suspect their day is very much coming.
My third point, and this goes a little bit to what we've been talking about tonight, my third point is that journalism needs to embrace the promise of artificial intelligence and smart machines. Failing to listen to what people are saying and thinking is one of the media's greatest sins, and we need to look no further than Trump's election for evidence of that. So surely journalists in the United States should now be spending as much time listening to the voters in Wisconsin as watching and reporting on the circus in Washington. Though that is not happening. But I think smart machines can be deployed as sophisticated means of unearthing key themes and ideas, uh, if you like, the undertow of public opinion, as opposed to the skimming stone of, a, of an opinionated public or its representatives. So coupled with old-fashioned journalistic practices, uh, like weirdly talking to people, um, journalists could well make, uh, these smart machines could well make an often deaf profession hear again. Um, but what journalists hear, by whatever means, they must, within the bounds of fairness and in the bright light of public interest, be free to publish. And it is a matter of great concern that recent changes to the Telecommunications Act and the ASIO Act place further restrictions on acts of journalism in the public interest. Changes to the uh, ASIO Act brought in by the Abbott government in 2015 do, as many critics have stated, criminalize journalism by preventing the reporting of covert ASIO raids known as special intelligence or, uh, operations. The penalty for revealing details and information about these SIOs is between five and ten years imprisonment. Now, unsurprisingly, media companies warned at the time of their introduction that the change, which is known as S35P, would have a chilling effect on freedom of speech. Of course, two years on, we don't really know the depth and the breadth of that chill because media companies aren't able to talk about the implementation of 30, S35P for fear of breaching the act. So the room is colder, we just don't know by how many degrees. And if you would like to read a bit more about this, I'd commend the work of a legal scholar, uh, James Nunes, who's a former journalist turned lawyer, uh, who's written a couple of very good papers about it. Worse still is the new system of journalism information warrants under the Telecommunications Act introduced again in, in late 2015. Uh, these are the data retention laws we've heard quite a lot about. And these data retention laws give 21 government agencies the power to seek information about journalist sources without, without journalists or their employers knowing, knowing about it. Journalists and publishers can't object to the data being sought and used to identify whistleblowers. So most of the law agencies covered by the Act have to apply to a judge of the federal court for the warrant, although um, ASIO, uh, when it's not doing an SIO, can go direct to the Attorney General. Everything about these warrants is secret. Reporting about them results in two years jail. The only friend of the journalist, the whistleblower, and by extension the public, is a person or persons uh, appointed as public interest advocates. And this was a last-minute concession as the amended act passed Parliament with bipartisan support. These PIAs are meant to make arguments about whether the disclosure of the journalist's source outweighs the public interest in protecting source confidentiality. But the PIAs are pretty well MIA because they, can, they can't actually talk to their clients uh, about what they are doing. So we don't know um, how the PIAs, the public interest advocates, are faring or how busy they are. 
Um, we do know the first two PIAs were retired judges with no experience in media law and certainly no uh, direct experience in journalism. But anyway, let's stay a little bit chilled for now. Uh, these and other changes are settling in. Uh, and given their secret nature, they may take some time to overtly impact on or grab the public attention. But grab, they will. It is incumbent on journalists and anyone else interested in freedom of speech, which clearly we all are here tonight, to talk about them as much as possible and to explore ways of monitoring their impact on public discourse. This is, of course, far easier said than done, but I have a few uh, thoughts on that, um, which I'm happy to share later on. Um, but let's finish on the big picture. Uh, journalists do now have a golden opportunity to restate the relevance and importance of what they do. Uh, they ought to enlist public support in doing that and be open to ways of listening more closely to the public as they do it. It's a partnership. Journalists do need to be more accountable, more transparent, and the public needs to learn to trust journalists again. Armed with public support and trust, journalists stand a greater chance of overturning restrictions on freedom of speech or beating off new ones. So that's my theory, call me naive. But in the absence of more robust shield laws to protect journalist sources, having the public on side might be the journalist's best bet after, of course, Donald Trump. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Peter. Now I've um, invited our speakers to join me at the table and um, I, will, I will start with a couple of, couple of questions and then um, hand over to the audience. I have a question, um, first of all, for anyone on the panel who would like to discuss how um, we deal with this challenge of accountability. Given that, uh, as Felicity mentioned, state sovereignty is very much imperiled by a lot of these technologies. So I wonder if we could hear from the panel on who is responsible for developing some um, hopefully ethical frameworks to deal with that. Would you like us Yes, to please. Yeah, great. Well, um, one of the cries that have, has come out in response to the metadata laws was come back with a warrant. If you need a warrant to enter my house and my car and my office, you should need a warrant to enter my digital life. And that is the mechanism that provides um, a, a check and a balance. It acknowledges that there is some legitimate surveillance for national security, intelligence and law enforcement requirements. However, you have to convince a judge that there is a credible cause for concern. And this is the mechanism that's been used for a long, long time, and it's stood us in good stead in lots of respects. It's very easy to convince a judge that, you know, peace people are terrible communists and must be all surveilled. So we've seen that not work as well. We've seen politicised agencies, you know, basically do the bidding. But the, the warrant is a key component that we need to return to, I would say. And I'm very happy to fund law enforcement, intelligence and security agencies, all the administration stuff that they need in order to actually do that properly. Because that also will give them social licence, credibility, which they have severely lost lately. 
So it's in their interests to in invest more in doing things properly, getting it right and doing it right. And I believe that the warrant system is what will actually bring us um, some procedural fairness and will we'll take this sort of technically driven, we we'll do it because we can. The technology lets us, of course, we should do it. We have to roll this back. It's happened in secret. We now know about it and, it, and I think it behooves us to actually um, act on what Snowden and WikiLeaks have, have showed us about the world. You know, we woke up one morning, the day after Snowden, you know, revelations started coming out and we, had, we were in a different world. We knew something completely different about the nature of our reality. But that was just about one agency, the NSA. What else don't we know? Lots. So uh, I think we need to return to some procedural mechanisms and, and, and the warrant works for me. Uh, so, a couple of things um, about accountability. Um, we, we broadly, and, and you know, uh, this is quite a simplistic solution. But, uh, I've spoken quite a lot to um, other media companies in, in trying to get media companies to actually all work together and actually report this stuff uh, in a collective kind of sense. It's very difficult, but I think there is a growing understanding that that can actually have an impact. Because really, this flourishes because it got, no one talks about it, really. I mean, and maybe it's not the, uh, the most immediate thing on people's heads, I understand that. But I think if we are committed to these issues, to more accountability, to freedom of speech, and what have you, uh, that we need to kind of grasp that. And I, I think we are reaching a tipping point in that. And, and perhaps, you know, and that's why I keep banging on about Trump, because I, I have a funny feeling he's going to change the sort of dynamics around this sort of thing. Um, so I do think that the, there needs to be a more collective kind of will around, say, media companies, but all, also civil society. Um, one of the things interesting, just going back to WikiLeaks, of course, uh, so WikiLeaks came out when I was editor-in-chief of the Herald, and we ran some of the WikiLeaks stuff. In fact, we had a journalist who was quite close to Assange, uh, who was an Australian, who made his, his business uh, to, to be so. Uh, of course, where the problem was for journalism it was, it is, and I suspect what you said, Felicity, has got a, quite a large grain of truth in it as well, but it was that there was sort of this anarchic kind of quality to a lot of the stuff that was thrown out there, which wasn't in, in essence journalistic. And, and I think journalists kind of used that anarchic quality to, as a way of dismissing Assange and other people who came after him. I think Snowden's actually quite different than Assange in that respect. Um, and so, Snowden was a whistleblower, WikiLeaks is a publisher. Yeah, exactly. So they're different, well, they're different yeah. functions. Yeah. Uh, so, so, but, uh, so I think there needs to be an understanding of, if you like, broad standards. And that's why I keep talking about accountability of media, because I do think the, uh, the, the, the distrust quotient uh, has been lost in part, not, not only, but in part because media has failed to explain what it does, why it does it, and how it does it. And, and not listen to people who say, hey, yeah, but we want to know more. And I think you know, now is the time for people to talk a lot more. Mm. Can I add something? Of course. Um, I, I, I like what you're saying about the, the need to collaborate, um, but also what you said about the a higher standard of evidence and, and, and how do we check this. Maybe there's something that technology can help with here, maybe. Um, have you heard of Bitcoin? the blockchain. So Bitcoin is an, it's an economic system whereby everybody witnesses transactions and the fact that everyone's witnessed them and verified them, that locks it in. It's that witnessing that makes it um, 
uh, there's an accountability to the whole. Perhaps there's something with the blockchain in terms of, uh, so it's not just in money, but in publishing, so that you can verify when something's published, that it hasn't been altered. Mm. There's things like that, mm. that, that, are, that are possible, I think, if we reimagine or we apply the concept of, of the blockchain, this collectivity of witnessing that, that records in history when something's happened. It'll make it harder to undo things, to, to rewrite history perhaps, but it also might help verify or bring in some of the peer review benefits of the systems that academics have to the media world. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, I know um, there's an Australian, ex-Australian journalist called Michael Casey who's at the uh, MIT Media Lab working on blockchain and journalism. Oh, really? Well, yeah, well, so it's got potential. Yeah. And a question, I just have a question actually that goes, takes us back to our first speaker just talking about the drones and that notion of the controlled environment. I wonder whether the geoengineers who are going to save us from global warming have the Winooski Dam concept um, in mind and the swarms of drones that, that you know, could, be, could be insects, I guess, in some sort of future world. I'm just wondering, um, Ian, in terms of, um, and, and involving the other speakers in this as well, the applications you mentioned that were very positive um, for the use of drone technology include data gathering for positive purposes. And I just wondered what you see as the re developing relationship between data collection by drones and the media and whether you have any ideas on that. Yeah, I think we're very much... Um we're very much moving into a, a period in which the drone is no longer synonymous with the, the military. It was born in a military context, and it still very much has military applications, but um, as uh, they've become cheaper, as they've become more sophisticated, Felicity talks a little bit about kind of Moore's law, how AI is, is kind of exponentially increasing. Um, the potential applications are no longer the preserve of the military. And with that, there are a host of other uh, potential uses, some positive, some negative. Um, so for every drone that may be employed by the police or the government to track our digital lives, there is also drones used by um, protesters, to, for example, to, to hold police to account in protests. Um, I think the point here is that we're entering a period of time in which airspace is becoming more complicated. So it's no longer a straightforward case of drones equals surveillance and military, but the potential applications are wide-ranging. I definitely see uh, positive applications. Um, but the point is, it's just like everyday life. Um, the future of drones is about to get very, very messy. Mm. It's very much changed the notion of witnessing something because you see it in a totally different way now. Um, what do you think from a newspaper man's perspective, a media producer's perspective, Peter Frey? Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by drones and I'm sort of slightly disappointed there are a lot of restrictions on how you can use a drone. Uh, you know, you've seen some early, uh, two, three years ago now, you know, flying a drone over, say, uh, Christmas Island Detention Centre was quite an interesting thing to do. Flying a drone into a bushfire is a really great thing to do in, in many ways. Well, great, you know, obviously it gives people a very close idea of the, what's happening. So I think there's a lot of positives in that. I, I, I agree with uh, Ian that we will see further complications and further restrictions on how we can use drones. And I, again, I think there needs to be a 
fuller public debate about the drones and privacy, because uh, that's, again, is still a bit of a nascent thing. Mm. Um, and I, I think it's important, again, for the public to get engaged with this debate, because otherwise, uh, you know, the people who, um, the 21 agencies that have, you know, access to journalism information warrants are going to be setting the tone for what happens. And um, I'm pretty sure we're not going to like that. Mm. Any comment? Um, look, just this, um, the, the, the idea that there can be positive surveillance. Um, I, one of the questions that I'm asking all my interviewees is, you know, when is surveillance of protesters and citizens going over the line for you? And it's really hard to, for people to, to describe when is it okay and when is it not okay, partly because, um, you know, people who work, say, for animal rights welfare, they know that surveillance cameras in abattoirs have made an enormous difference. Um, in a positive way to the treatment of animals. Um, we know, for example, that um, Jill, I can't remember her name, in Melbourne, um, it was CCTV footage that was helped people apprehend the, her rapist and murderer um, and has taken a serial you know, problem person you know, off the street. So, so it is complex, um, but when there is official surveillance by a government entity or... Some, a government entity outsources that function, um, then we must have basic information, um, basic transparency about those processes, which is why I think the warrant you know, kicks in again. So even, it's only okay when there's, when there's a paper trail. Thank you. Well, I'm sure everyone's got lots of questions, and I'd like to introduce and also give a massive thank you to Meredith Hall, the organiser of Sydney Ideas, who is going to be wandering about with a microphone. So if you would like to ask a question, please uh, make sure you raise your hand clearly. We have Peter down the front here first. And also, please just remember we are being recorded. And in the interest of getting everybody to have an opportunity to speak, just please limit your... Um, Questions to questions, and not too many long comments. Thank you. Thanks, Peter Hobbins from Sydney University. Thanks to all the speakers. It was a great provocation. Uh, my question is to Ian. A few months ago, I attended an air power seminar that was uh, stuffed almost entirely by serving Air Force personnel. And in the context of drones, I asked them, did they see their role converging with policing? And their response to the concept was almost universally hostile. And I wondered what your take is on how the police feel about militarisation of their operations in the context of drones. Yeah, um, really interesting question. Um, some of the research that I've done on police militarisation in the US, for example, um, it's, it seems very clear that there's um, huge pushes and exchanges from um, military war gear into the hands of police officers. Um, some of you might remember the, the news around Ferguson, Missouri, and uh, it really came to light at that particular time, the Congressional 1033 program, which is a, a formal program by which uh, ex-military gear is channeled to police departments around the US. Uh, so, for example, you had mine-resistant armoured personnel carriers, or MRAPs, being delivered to high school police forces, for example. And you had images, particularly in Ferguson, of warrior cops, as Radley Balco calls them, um, police officers that, to me, look nothing like police officers, look very much like um, soldiers, 
And the question then becomes, um, does the use of tools and technology determine, condition, influence, push the culture of policing, which I think is, is pivotal. And I think it very much depends on already existing cultures. So within US policing, there is, there is very much uh, a history of, of racialized policing, of racist policing. Um, and so I think as a geographer, it depends on what space we're talking about. Um, in terms of this convergence between policing and the Air Force, there's very much the there's very much the potential for the drone to blur those lines. And I think something like the, the US borderlands where um, predators and reapers are flown um, to monitor um, border crossings is very much a testing ground for this exact question. Um, and again, it's gonna be a question that is played over and over again as, as this sort of drone technology spreads. I've got it. <laughs> Hi, thank you. They were fabulous talks. Um, I have a question also for Ian, but, but for Felicity also. Um, so when you were speaking about the nature of drones, you got to a point, Ian, where you said, um, you started talking about the corporate use of drones. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that you used the term the less pernicious use. And, and Felicity, you just said when governments use surveillance or outsource surveillance. And I was a little surprised. In Australia, I would completely expect it if we were in the United States, but I was a little surprised about this, this divide between the corporate and the political world, with really the main culprit still being the state. Uh, which is problematic for me for a couple of reasons. First, because the state's been so heavily, heavily corporatised, so in whose interest is the state operating? But also, and, and this is really to you, Ian, because there was such a Foucauldian tone to your remarks, that if we think about a Foucauldian notion of freedom, that it's not just about whether someone would control whether I'm going to die, but how am I going to be made to live? where corporations are really much more pernicious agents in terms of how I'm going to be made to live. Mm. And if we're, that's talking in a kind of liberal consumer society, but what about oil companies spying on their workers using, you know, if we talk about the developing world where resource companies are going to be using drones to control their workers' lives, we already know that's happening. So I really just wanted you to comment on this this assumption about where the most pernicious source of surveillance lies. Yeah, thank you for that uh, question, which is itself quite a, a complex question to address. I, I think very much this divide between the corporate and the military application is, is false. Um, the fact is, is that drones used by the military are for profit. They're, provided by for-profit companies, General Atomics in the case of Predators and Reapers. So I don't mean to suggest that uh, there's, a, there's this divide here. I think uh, ideas such as the military-industrial complex 
demonstrates the fact that the corporate and the military have always been bedfellows. And in the case of the drone, uh, the history of the rise of the drone is very much a story of um, the relationship between um, corporations and the military. And in terms of your, your question um, or your comment about the, um, the way that corporate drones may indeed structure our lives in ways that are, are far more potentially invasive than uh, the state drones. I think that's absolutely right. And I think uh, this idea of the internet of things is one of the things that really freaks me out. Um, the idea of your fridges and your cookers being connected to the cloud. And I, again, I think that this um, is one of those issues that I should say is complex rather than inherently scary. Um, but it's decentralization of, of everything we do. Um, and the way that um, our digital lives across all the different um, things that we use are, are connected together, uh, I think um, has the potential for all kinds of abuses. The example I usually like to give is that if you're um, in the US, if your health insurance company um, knows what's in your fridge, uh, and then that's connected to your gym membership that registers your BMI, and so if you've had too many donuts that day, your fridge will refuse to open. And probably a good thing. Probably a good thing, yeah. Um, but, but I think this, this ecosystem of things that's connected, of which the drone is a part, um, is, a, is again a complex uh, and, for me, scary uh, future. Well, I just think yours is a terrific question. Um, so when I'm doing crypto parties, sometimes I do this exercise at the start, a warm-up exercise. So stand up if, stand up if, stand up if you've you know, lost a laptop or you've, you've got one password. Don't stand up. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. Um, and one of them is, are you more concerned about corporate surveillance or are you more scared of, you know, concerned about state surveillance? And it's just a really interesting moment in the room because people are unsure, right? Um, of which one is, you know, you can see people hesitating before that they shoot straight up. So this is a really important question and I think that um, what I was trying to get at was that it's the same thing, they've come together in all kinds of ways. Um, for example, 70% of the NSA's budget is outsourced to corporate partners. Very often people who were just very recently inside the NSA who've gone outside to make some great consultancy. Um, so there's you know, millions, literally millions of people with security clearances in the um, US system that are, that are, not, um, that are corporate um, employed folks. Um, if you look at some of the slides that came out early in the Snowden revelations about PRISM, the PRISM program was um, the NSA being able to stick their fangs into all of the data in Yahoo, uh, um, uh, uh, Gmail, so there's nine of them. Um, I used to be able to rattle them off. So there is a, there's, there's, there's overt collaboration um, in the form of outsourcing, but there's also you know, um, programs which actually pull this information and, um, uh, and make it indistinguishable as to who is the culprit here. Um, it is, they're all in together now. So that, that, that really gets, your question gets to the crux of the problem here of how are we going to get accountability when this has become a profit spinning um, market? This is, this is a, this is a, this is a, um, this is a, a for-profit industry now, the surveillance industrial complex. So, um, and it's, and we're paying for it <laughs> with our taxes.
Over to David. Oh, just a, a bit of a question mainly for Peter. Uh, I was just hoping you might be able to reflect a little bit on some of the links between uh, information, transparency and accountability. Because one of the things that I was thinking when you were speaking, a bit of a comment here but I'll be very brief, are those contexts where more information, more transparency can actually lead to problems with accountability. And the kind of areas I was thinking of are institutions where there's a certain level of informal communication which is required for those institutions to function. So science would be an example. Like you can get something like the so-called you know, climate gate leaks, uh, where you've got the difficulty of scientists having informal communications becoming very transparent. So I was wondering whether it's something that's not looked at enough in this current environment of lots of demands for transparency about whether or not just as big a problem is a cultural kind of literacy deficit about how institutions actually work and what sort of communication is required within institutions. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, uh, and it's, you know, ClimateGate is a great one to, to cite because clearly uh, some media organisations, one of which I, I, I used to work for, was very excited when climate gate happened because it kind of proved their sort of, if you like, ideological point around climate change and, and the information. So isn't, isn't, there's a couple of things there. One is around media literacy. And I, I, I do think, I mean, kind of what I'm really trying to say a lot is, is that we need, the journalists in particular, but others also, civil society broadly, there needs to be a re-energization around media literacy. What, you know, what, is it, what are we talking about? Uh, because, uh, you know, I think this idea that, that uh, there's a kind of a room full of facts on any one issue, and you unlock this room and go and pick the facts you want and come out and write stories, is kind of well, it's bullshit. We all know that. But, but I think we, we still want to sort of pretend that exists. Um, I mean, it, the answer to uh, what you're talking about, really, in essence, is selective use of information rather than information per se. I, uh, you know... Uh, for instance, a journalist does an FOI and, the, and gets half, half of what he or she wanted back, they will write a story based on that. Uh, perhaps what they ought to say is this is half of what we wanted or this is half of what we got back rather than, oh my God, I've got this FOI and get excited. I mean, I do think we are quite excitable around <laughs> leaks and such like. Am, am I, how am I doing? I have well, that's why you need journalists. That's why you need journalists, right? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, that's why I think, you know, I, th I think there is a collaboration going on here because there is a lot of information out there now, right? I mean, there's a lot of information. Uh, it's not as if you're short of stories or and or short of information to make stories. And I think that's why there needs to be a level of media literacy that explains what journalists do. And journalists themselves need to be part of that explanation to say this is why we picked this bit. And uh, one of the things we used to do in PolitiFact was put up all the information we used to make that story, 90% of which probably didn't make it into the final story, with an invitation to, hey, go ahead, knock yourself out and read, read on. Um, I don't think you can have too much information, though, right? I think you could. No, I'm not so sure about that. It's, it's how we filter it, isn't it? One of the strategies large corporations used to use to try and block people trying to say, litigate things like uh, mm. proxy reports or whatever, yeah. to actually flood uh, or you demand what you call the search subpoena, so actually demand scientists and stuff to be open to everyone, the thing they do, which 
Again, that's what you need journals, right? And willing collaborators as well. Selection, yeah. Okay, and our next question. All right, thank you. Jacob's my name, and thanks everybody. Um, Peter, not Peter, Ian, sorry, you mentioned the Internet of Things, and, and, and we're getting to the point now which the, there's a, the technology, as Felicity said, is increasing exponentially. Um, I guess what I'm wondering, uh, a few things have been alluded to, the technology of always, it has always increased, and I know these conversations about the flow of information were going on when they, tried, when they first started putting the telegraph through 200 years ago, and technology will increase. What I'm sort of wondering is the technological level of understanding in your average people, and I don't want to be too derogative and, um, and um, take the term drones, to mean, um, to, to mean all of us in a, in a worker bee sense, mm -hmm. but how much are we almost like frogs boiling in water, accepting that our fridges now know how many donuts are in them? Um, <laughs> I, 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 work f I, I work for a, a fairly major union organisation. I'm not representing them officially, so I won't mention it, but it shocked me when a recent new administration came in um, and I was talking to the, to the new administration about security aspects, an absolute, not only lack of knowledge, but lack of willingness to even discuss doing things like PGP, redoing their passwords. The amount of union officials who have their password written on a yellow label under their keyboard is absolutely frightening. Mm. All right. Um, how do we get beyond that with things like Felicity mentioned, um, I think it used the term crypto parties, um, um, Peter uh, mentioned um, a colleague working working on um, blockchain in, in MIT. Now, how do we how do we get this? Like, even I assume all of us in this room have a reasonable um, interest in these kind of issues. Yet, how many of us use Bitcoin and PGP? That That's would be a great question. That would be Let's, an interesting um, little survey. <laughs> how do we get beyond? How do we get beyond that? Who'd like to address that very good question about the drones? I'm sure there's a book title in that. People and drones. Uh, yeah, I'll just respond very quickly. I, uh, you're right that humans and technology have co-evolved forever and since humans have been around. I think what interests me at the moment is whether or not we're reaching this hollowed singularity or, or tipping point that is um, not just quantitatively new, that is technology gets better and better and better, but qualitative new, qualitatively new. That is, it's doing something that it never did before. Um, and here, here we get to the questions of automation, autonomy. Um, we get to the anxieties of whether robots are taking our jobs at rates that uh, can no longer be replaced by other forms of work. And that, I think, is an extremely interesting question. And it's a question that is uh, getting economists scratching their heads. Um, since, you know, historically, robots were... Robots automated muscles. They did repetitive things over and over again. But with this advance in artificial intelligence, they can uh, take administrative jobs. Very often, if you ring a helpline, it's a robot you'll speak to to begin with until you get through to the right person, if you ever get through to the, uh, the right person or a person. And so I, I think this is very much a question of how humans and robots will evolve in the future, and I think it's a political question. It's very often framed as an economic question, but I think it's a political question. And I think it's a political question precisely because 
there's an inherent risk that the people that build and own the robots accumulate vast wealth at the expense of people that once had their jobs, therefore skewing um, already unequal societies. So, so my brief response there is, is, is this question as whether we're entering a historically novel phase. Uh, yeah, look, I'm looking forward to being a robot poli polisher, a <laughs> uh, robot wrangler. Uh, I'm actually doing a bit of work on this, and uh, clearly lots of jobs are going to be replaced by robots. They already are. I suspect, though, that a lot of jobs will, may well be created. We may, some of us may have a lot more leisure time uh, to eat donuts. Um, or not. Or not, yeah, as the fridge won't let us. Um, you know, I, I, again, I think there needs to be a more uh, fulsome debate about this. I, I think the, it's very easy to say, hey, robots are going to take your job. Or in journalism, for instance, so robots were used by Associated Press to report on the last Olympics. Uh, and they did, uh, robots did, or AI did the basic results stuff. And there are lots of programs emerging already that can basically, you know, do repetitive journalism, if you like. Um, so the upside of that, of course, is that they, that should, in theory, free up a load of journalists to do more investigative stuff that robots can't do. That's my, I'm being positive about this for a minute. Um, and I would say um, something that Cory Doctorow, a wonderful writer, said oh. a little while ago was that we have reached peak indifference about surveillance. That in the future, people will be increasingly concerned about this issue, but what I'm observing is um, something a bit similar to, remember Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief? Um, there's, there's some stages of coping with surveillance, I think. Um, I'm seeing lots of activists I know assuming they're under surveillance, but also saying, oh, I'm probably not under surveillance, I'm not important enough to be under surveillance, I don't care or I'm teaching them, I'm, I'm, my transparency, like there's all these strange ways that we try and integrate the reality of every move we make being surveilled on these things, these, these, these tracking devices that happen to make phone calls. Um, and so maybe as we evolve, um, you know, in tandem with the, with the Internet of Things, we will, um, you know, go through various coping strategies. But I notice on the yearning for encryption um, knowledge that when there's a new legislation going through, it peaks. People are, ah, I need to know this stuff. Or when there's a data breach, when Target releases everybody's, you know, people go, oh, God, you know, I need some tricks and tips and do's and don'ts for living in the digital age. Help me download something. Help me send a send an email. Um, I work for a tech company, and um, just around the, uh, the the water cooler um, the other day, people were talking about how easy some of these smart homes are to open. You just walk around, you know, saying something in a certain tone of voice or clapping or like. There is an inherent insecurity about these things as the early adopters take up some of this technology, um, this smart technology, and some silly things will happen, and that will be another kind of inspiration for adjustment, I hope. Um, but I think this, this kind of these coping strategies and these stages of grieving for the loss of our privacy, there's something in there um, as we discuss these issues. Excellent. Question down the front. Yeah, uh, thanks, team. This is, uh, my name's Tibor Molnar. I'm here from Sydney University. Um, Ian, you spoke about domes, and Peter, you spoke about journalists and, and Felicity, you spoke about accountability in the corporate world. There's one area I can think of where all three come together. 
uh, which is where, in fact, the corporate world are building the domes. Um, we shouldn't forget that the media industry itself is a corporation and they're also a for-profit business and they're going to try and feed us the news that they think we want to hear or that gives them the greatest number of clicks on their website or something. And there's a bit of a feedback loop in there and that, that the street punters like myself will click on something to have a look at it, the media company will discover that I'm interested in that and they'll feed me more of it and I'll end up in a little dome of my own. I end up in a little media bubble of my own, somehow of my own creation. So my question is, what can we do? How do we hold the corporations accountable so that they don't build domes around individual people to exploit them and get more money out of them? How do we get the journalists to somehow operate under the power of the, uh, of the media industry, because they're employed by the media, so they some have to work in that framework, how do they operate in such a way that they're not somehow um, complicit in, in this building of these little personal domes that everybody lives in? Uh, and, and, and how do we have accountability in that framework? I don't know which of you would like to tackle that. I might start with Peter Frey, I think. Uh, there's a few ways of answering that. Um, you know, uh, let's. One, one, one really quick answer to it is um, it's up to journalism and media companies. We need to find a new business model. And, and, and because what you're really talking about is a business model that, re, re, that re, uh, restates all the time, you know, what you just talked about, you know, creation of filter bubbles, if you like. Um, and I think, it's, I think there's, a, there's signs, there are signs of that emerging. I mean, they're pretty slow. But if you look at, for instance, say, The Guardian is asking people to become a member, well, that's a different type of business model. Uh, the New York Times is doing wonderful things in subscriptions, and they're creating personalized services. Because there is an upside to knowing what, you, what you're interested in, right? So you actually get the news you want. Um, there is, but what you're really talking about is the kind of, if you like, the pernicious, uh, potentially pernicious and, and often is pernicious sort of impact of Facebook and such like, where 70 cents in every new dollar is being made and the media companies are fighting over the other 30 cents in the dollar. Um, so people need to become um, more uh, empowered. I mean, the, the truth is you don't have to... Um, read the crap that's served up to you, do you? <laughs> you know, I know it's easy, and I, uh, but you don't have to. I, I do think that we can become a little bit more picky in what we do. Um, I, and I do think as new, so the journalism scholar Jeff Jarvis has a nice saying which is around journalism, which is that it needs to become a service that people value rather than just uh, content filling up your inbox. And I, I really very much believe in that sort of as a starting point. So what is the service that you value um, that you're prepared to pay for? I mean, one of the real problems we have, of course, is that uh, for a long time, the first 10 years or so, a lot of uh, journalism on the internet was free. So people thought, hey, this is all right. It's free. <coughs> and now, of course, as more and more, and more journalists go out of jobs, lose their jobs and what have you, and the business model collapses because digital revenues are nowhere near what the print, print revenues were, uh, we, everyone's struggling saying, hey, no, you have to pay for it now. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to see a show of hands for people who actually pay for journalism in this room. Oh, it's not so bad. I usually I get about three. But, um, you know, that's only less, that's about, less than 50, about 15, maybe 20% of the people in this room pay for journalism. 
Uh, now, I, look, I'm not naive. I'm not saying, hey, it should be 100%. But, uh, and that may be, as I, I kind of said in my talk, there's a little bit about uh, journalists taking responsibility and becoming more transparent and listening more to what people actually want to know about. And I do think one of the upsides around smart machines and what have you is that you can understand more fully, at, if, you, if they're used properly, you can understand more fully what people actually are talking about. And I think that's only a, that can only be a good thing. Any comment from our other speakers? Well, I mean, yeah, you, you're, you are speaking about a business model. And um, it's interesting when I compare, as in my research, the, um, the business model of you know, mainstream media and some of these more new and disruptive type outlets like WikiLeaks, um, you know, which is growing and um, you know, is, is increasing its staff, is increasing, whereas all of the other you know, mainstream media platforms are struggling. And what is, what is, what is the, um, the reason for that? I keep talking about Barrett Brown because I'm very excited that he's just got out of jail, also because he's got some great ideas. And one of the things that he's coming out of jail to build is um, what he's calling, calling the pursuant system. Here is a journalist who participated and observed very closely how anonymous operated. Mm. So it's an interesting insight that he has. But what he's saying is, as he comes out, there are ways that that operation, that pooling together of people to undertake intensive research and to try and, and, and do something, um, how can we apply that in different ways? How can we apply that in terms of journalism? Um, he's written about how um, you know, we're in this incredible age right now where any person can collaborate with another individual on the other side of the planet and that there's new forms of journalism and organising and research that we don't know yet, we're not doing it yet. There are other things we haven't tried yet which involves less force, less coercion, less inertia, building on the institutions that are falling away. And so I think that actually we should challenge ourselves not only to be as depressed as possible about all this technology, which is very easy to do, but there, there are still very new things like the blockchain, like this you know, concept of, of you know, like process democracy that he's trying to develop, but also collaborative journalism um, or scientific journalism a la WikiLeaks that, that has a lot of promise. So I don't think that, it's, that we are doomed in this kind of corporate media. Um, and I think that perhaps this shifting trust or hope or belief or investment in traditional media will help make some of these new things, you know, uh, come about quicker. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think we're stuck in the corporate media zone, especially now that people have more choice. Yes, they're coming into bubbles, but um, they're also becoming the media. Like, don't mourn, organise, you know, don't, don't um, criticise the media, become the media, and that's so much easier now in the internet age, that, you know, you can become a publisher overnight. There's contradictions and challenges in that, but there's incredible potentialities that we haven't found yet because people think the internet is Facebook. They're stuck in Facebook. It's unbelievable. Get off Facebook. Everybody get off Facebook now. Um, and deploy this technology and invent things with it that um, we don't when we are spending all our time on Facebook. Now, my surveillance device tells me it's 7.30, but we are going to have our final question for this gentleman who has the microphone. Thanks for your wonderful insights. Um, I was wondering, have any of the panellists seen Microsoft's suggestion in the past few days of the need for a digital co Geneva Convention to protect civilians in the private sector from nation states' cyber warfare? And do you think such an international agreement could ever happen? I've thought a lot about this one. Should I go? 
So um, cyber weapons are put all of this wonderful potential technology, but also all of our critical infrastructure at risk because society has integrated with the internet all over the world, governments, uh, utilities, communications, transport, so much of, of what we do and how we communicate, how our systems work has gone online. So therefore, the, the potential threat of cyber weapons is, is that much greater. Um, and more than 120 countries are researching and developing these cyber weapons, this, these, these means to attack. A really good film um, by Alex Gibney, who, who, who's made some terrible films, but this one's a very good one called Zero Days. And it explains what the nature of this danger is and how difficult it is to control these weapons. And he puts out very clearly that it's time for us to think in terms of these weapons like we did about nuclear weapons. It takes a long time to negotiate the treaties. The, the shared definitions that we don't even have yet. So I absolutely think that we need cyber peace and we need to start talking about the internet as a demilitarised zone because it's becoming very, very militarised and this surveillance is a key part of it. Um, so uh, I, I like this idea. There was also something pr uh, proposed by Glenn Greenwald's partner a few years ago called the Snowden Treaty, which was another attempt at this idea. Um, but the fact that a major company like Microsoft that has been such a uh, you know, player in this field is, is saying it is very, very positive. Um, so this is, this is a very real and present danger, the development of these weapons. Um, but what we are trying to protect is literally everything. It's not just the internet. Um, it's bridges and, um, and ports and everything that's come online. So it's, you know, it's, it, it has the potential to be extremely, extremely destructive, these weapons. So they do need to be controlled. Thank you. And a final comment from our other two speakers? Yeah, it sounds like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, likewise. Um, I'd just like to thank everyone for being such a great audience, actually. I know that's the source of I know that's your job, but I, I think it's been a great panel and a great <laughs> audience. Thank you. I would agree, and um, I would like you to formally thank our speakers. Uh, you've joined us for Drones, Lies and Privacy, Trust and Accountability in the Era of Mass Surveillance, and I would like to thank so much Ian Shaw, Felicity Ruby and Peter Frey. <laughs>